Hey everyone, it's Gabby and Danny and Manny and you're listening to Oye, Let's Talk. So today's episode is a little more serious. It's on Cuba. Cuba has made headlines yet again since the beginning of July of this year, this time for recent protests. Many say it continues to be a humanitarian crisis amid the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been under a communist regime for years, but Gabby and Manny are here to talk about their personal stories from family abroad and stories they grew up hearing over the years as they are both Cuban. So Gabby, Manny... How do you guys feel about what's been happening? Is this more of the same or is it different this time? The one word that comes to mind is unprecedented. And when videos started surfacing of what was going on in Cuba and the protests, not only its size, but its breadth across the country, several cities had come out to the streets to protest. And that hadn't been seen in Cuba in a very, very long time, for decades. And that was powerful. That was powerful. And for a lot of Cuban Americans here in Miami, it gave us and our community a new breath of a chance of freedom for our people. And those protests really started something these past few weeks where you've seen people really pushing a change in the country. And that is something that hasn't been seen in a very long time. And even activism here in our own country, where Cuban Americans are even traveling to D.C. and pressuring not, not only Biden, but local officials to kind of do whatever they can to free the Cuban people and give them liberty. So to provide some historical context to this, like... I just want to remind our listeners like to decentralize yourself like American way of thought is very much like yeah protest for change but that's not something the Cuban people could do because of their government the last time they saw a large movement like this was in 1994 which they called the Maleconazo uprising and they it's dubbed basically in history as Cuba's first popular revolt so think before I was born was the last major uprising that the island saw. And it was the, a very localized uprising. Yeah, it was in one spot only. And that's some people don't even consider these massive protests like this. On July 11th, there was around, if not more, 25 reportable protests on the island. And that means at least 100 people gathering. Like they mapped it. I don't know if you all have seen the Google Maps of it, but they mapped it out using like video and internet ping. So who's to say what it looks like in smaller, more remote areas? And for context, the island stretches 777 miles a punto from punto. And people from all across that area were deciding to hit the streets in a way that honestly has never been seen before. So 777 miles of people coming out to say something, that's like from Miami to Atlanta a little I would say Miami to Atlanta is a little bit too far but that's kind of like the distance to put it on to perspective and I think personally after some of gathering some of this historical context with 11 million people who call Cuba home which by the way is half the population of Florida and the median age around 42 years old 
this community has only ever known the government that they've seen. Fidel Castro implemented his regime in 1959, so this has been more than 60 years in the making, and most of the island's residents don't have the same fear or the same knowledge or like the same attachment to the communist regime that's there now because they've seen different leaders. It, it was Fidel most of their lives, but they've seen from Fidel to Raul to now Miguel, and They've only known trade sanctions, scarcity, authoritarian rule, what some people may call oppression. So yeah, if that's your lifetime, there's no good time or back then for Cuba for you. Like it makes sense why people got fed up. So just to be clear, uh, because I, I definitely think you both have a lot more insight than a lot of us, even those of us who are in news and, and read all about it. Um, there seems to be this misconception from what I hear of my Cuban friends that it's not just because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like this didn't just start because of the lack of resources and vaccines and just help for all these sick people. It's like this is just a culmination of it. This is like the cherry on top. Is that correct? COVID has definitely been a factor into what has bubbled out of Cuba. It's definitely pushed the people there to the brink of exacerbation where no long on top of the scarcity and the oppression and every, every difficulty of daily life to just eat on top of that. Now you're in a world pandemic where hospitals have no resources to treat you. I actually saw my mother recently and she was telling me that one of my cousins was at one of the hospitals and this man was coming into the hospital and there was nothing. There was no medicine. There was no drugs to give him. There wasn't even a place to put this patient at because there was no room. So it would be silly to ignore the COVID effects, but I think there's more to it. And Gabby? I think um, something to consider is that Cuba was once honored for its world-class health system, right? Um, that was one of Fidel Castro's, uh, I guess, went redeeming options of the regime. Let me reword that. Cuba was once known for having a world-class healthcare system because it's, and this now, if you're into politics, why people say it's social, um, universal healthcare socialist, because that's what they implemented. If you needed medicine, you needed something, you could go, or you can go to the hospital, like no questions asked. But that's not the case if you're, if the government isn't pumping money into the medical system or healthcare. So I think with the pandemic, they were slow to act, slow to roll out vaccinations. And quite honestly, like if the World Health Organization has helped or like humanitarian health organizations have stepped in to try and help Cuba, but because of wanting to seem like a powerful regime, first of all, a lot of help was turned down until more recently. And we've been what, a year and a half into the pandemic at this point. So to know, for your people to know or hear that they could have received help but didn't because of someone uh, because of politics um just doesn't that's the humanitarian crisis at heart right and to know that you once had a great healthcare system but the government decided that it's not great like this is the problem with universal healthcare if the government doesn't support it then then it doesn't work right and you have no other option and that's what ended up happening happening in terms of medical care 
when and the issue isn't just covid right like to you can't find tylenol like people were getting sick detrimentally sick from just the flu or the cold headaches or like a sore throat you couldn't treat and people were dying from these ailments all because either the medicine costs too much there was an acute shortage and the government controls because it's a centrally planned economy not like capitalists the way we're used to the government decides how much of a product to put out and how much of it can be purchased and at what price so because of those details it's very tough like okay, maybe there's Tylenol on the island, but if it costs $20 for just one pill, and for the record, that's about how much someone gets paid a month in Cuba, are you going to spend your entire month's pay on one Tylenol? Is that fair? And then add COVID into the mix? Oof, that poor hospital system. Yeah, no. I'm hearing you both talk about this, and it obviously we're very privileged and we live in a first world country, but in some sense, like I, I recall feeling like that sense of how chaotic the United States was at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't really know what was going on. We had scarcity of like, toilet paper. And I can't even imagine like, if that happened here in the United States, how bad it's over there in those third world countries, like, it's to the 10th degree worse, if that makes sense. Wait, sorry, I want to fact check myself because I said $20 a month. It's $220 a month is the average pay. Even worse. Yeah, but like pe for people to make $20 is a lot. And everything is in U.S. dollars, but they're not paid in U.S. dollars. Right. Do you both feel like in some sense this protest gives a lot of Cubans and Cuban-Americans hope because of social media, because of that difference that you know, that advantage that they didn't have beforehand. Now the world is watching. Danny, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's that's been one of the biggest role players in organizing the Cuban people. Um, <clears throat> with Facebook being available, that those first protests that came out of the island and that they were so big and organized across the country was in part because of social media and the way that Cubans were able to organize via the internet, which hadn't been seen before because it wasn't available before. And it's worthy to note that after the protest, uh, gov the Cuban government blacked out all internet access. Mm -hmm. um, and even like uh, cell phone, like uh, fo tel uh, telephone access. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To even communicate with families abroad. So it's definitely been a big tool, and I think the government knows that, and it's definitely been trying to control that the way it can. But it is horrifying seeing those images of people getting arrested and people knowing that these people might die that are probably getting tortured by the Cuban government. And it's just it's it's I, it speaks to that significance you know you asked danny like how significant this is and if it brings us hope when your people when they know that fighting can bring you death that is when you know like that they are out on the streets and they're fighting for their liberty because that's all they have and they have nothing else and it's reached this you know this boiling point and it's it's I don't know. I, I I'm it's lost for words. I'm lost yeah. for words on how to describe it because it's it's very powerful and impactful. But I don't know what I think the future is what's scary. And, you know, is this all just hopeful or 
well, how much change will this bring? Or, you know, this is just symbolic. Are we trying to cling on to something that may not come to fruition? And I think similar situations have happened where social media has helped spark revolutions elsewhere. You've seen it in Syria. You've seen it in Israel, Palestine. You've seen it in Venezuela. To what extent it's helped, I, I'm not sure. You know, like has has the government in these countries fully changed? Not really from what I've seen, but it definitely, like we've said before, like I think the fact that the world is watching the world is supporting them and we're bringing more awareness and attention to it, especially with the hashtag SOS Cuba. Um, people that do not associate with Cubans are aware that something is happening in Cuba. And I think that's definitely some sort of win. And Danny, you hit the nail on the head right there. I think, you know, it's a lot to ask people to risk their lives, but to utilize the resources they have to create visibility to an issue. Like it's not stuck in the UN anymore. It's not stuck among humanitarian organizations. It's not stuck in academia for people who are studying these places. Um, fun fact here is that cell phones or smartphones didn't really come to Cuba with internet access until I think around 2008. So for perspective, like, they haven't been, they haven't had the technology that we're seeing for like even 20 years but that's why we're able to see such mobilization and i think it's important to remember that the cuba protests aren't just in cuba i saw them in philadelphia i saw people in new york new hampshire texas california boston um all over florida i live in orlando that's like the hispanic population is primarily puerto rican and dominican and they were out there too in solidarity something that I'm going to put a pin in that topic, but essentially like, it's incredible that if it weren't first, like a few people sharing these videos or sharing what things are like, it wouldn't have extended beyond Miami and creating national headlines from the small Island. That's not just about politics. Like it's actually about the people. We haven't actually seen that in a long time too. Like unless it was a documentary or a reporter sent there we're actually seeing real people of Cuba and how they're living for the first time in years. That's not just file footage. And we've been hearing a lot in the past how the embargo or from from the usually the rhetoric from the Cuban government was we're like this because of this embargo, because we're being choked out by the U.S. So the government plays this woe is me card. But at the end of the day, even if those embargoes weren't there, the country would still be oppressing its people. And at the end of the day, that's what the Cuban people want and Cuban Americans. They they just don't want this embargo to lift, but they want freedom for their people. And, and bringing this embargo isn't necessarily going to bring them that liberty and freedom. And for those who don't know, can you guys explain a little bit what that consists of? What does that mean that the United States um, has placed an embargo in Cuba? Basically, the U.S. ain't trading with Cuba. They're not doing business with them. Right. So whatever Cuba... So there's no economy going in and out of the country. Yeah, but from our side. And this was very much like a Cold War tactic mm -hmm. used as well. And it's because Cuba has other homies and the U.S. doesn't agree with the government and the style because Cuba being so close to the, main, to the U.S. mainland and choosing to not be an ally is like a big deal because its proximity really does in terms of warfare or impact. Us. Yeah, it it does it not just benefits us, but it like actually works out well for whoever our non-allies may be considered, like in this case, 
anyone who's communist, like the Russians, for instance, or in some cases, China. Um, Cuba is so the way where it's poised brings closer access to those large powers as well. And that's where I go back to the embargo is like the embargo is a political tactic at the end of the day. Um, Cuba actually imports like 70% of its goods. It cannot grow enough food to feed all the people on the island. So that means they are heavily reliant on importing stuff. So the sanction, that's why the Cuban government says like, well, the U.S. is squeezing us out. They produce all this food or they produce all these goods that could be easily be given to Mm -hmm. us. But at the same time, it's like at the end of the day, like you're going to scratch your friends back. And Cuba didn't play nice with the U.S. And to be honest, the U.S. doesn't play nice with Cuba. So it's a very political reason that's surrounding the embargo. But as Manny mentioned, like, okay, the sanctions can be lifted. We'll we'll do trade. But who's to say that the goods are going to get to the Cuban people? Who's to say that? Right. And I think I think Biden even came out saying something along those lines like they they are very much aware of what's going on they're in talks about how maybe they can help out the problem is that there is no guarantee that the government is not going to take these goods so that's that's the main worry is it all for nothing sort of thing and then i also think that it's very hard to not blur the lines as you guys have mentioned because yes how to take politics out of the equation is that even a possibility at the end of the day this is a humanitarian crisis like people are surviving they're not even living like they're trying to survive out there so i think that's the hardest part so just to add to what gabby was saying on the sanctions you know the 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 point of putting sanctions on any other country is yeah to usually pressure them into something when we put sanctions on iran we were trying at the end of the day to control their nuclear you know nuclear program so in trying to have these sanctions against Cuba, we're trying to, hey, change your political regime so you can, you know, trade with us and have all this economic opportunity. So you see that. But at the end of the day, like as you guys were saying, it's this does not guarantee freedom for the people, whether it is lifted or not. And that's that's what I want to mention. And to that point, to like falling back, listen, the U.S. tried to invade Cuba and overthrow the government before, like under John F. Kennedy partnered, I think, with the CIA. People still have conspiracy theories about this, but the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. And they brought Cuban exiles who know the terrain, know the land, were trained, etc., to go ahead and try to overthrow the Castro regime shortly after he took power, and which is honestly the opportune time. And it didn't work. It um I think it failed. If it, it it failed. And I feel I had like a lot of downfalls. Epically. <laughs> yes. For context, this is 1961, 62? Yeah, it was in April of 1961. I think it was the 17th. It lasted like two or three days. Mm-hmm. Like they took more prisoners of war. It was pretty it was pretty much a botched invasion. And the US walked away with egg on their face. And that looks really crappy. Now, I'm just saying that if Cuba's friends with the Russians, I don't know why they're not putting pressure over there on Putin for more stuff, but whatever. I'm not that uh, knowledgeable on international relations on that side of things. However, I do want to recommend a book that as a Cuban American, I'm still reading it. I actually like dropped off it a little bit. Um, but it's called Finding Manana. It's a memoir of a Cuban exodus. So it's really great. You don't have to be a journalist to love it. However, a journalist for the New York Times 
Mirta Ojito, who was born in Havana and actually escaped Cuba when she was really young, talks about it. And it really opened my eyes about like the connections because she puts in her personal story and then writes in the personal stories from her perspective of key players in in Cuba and U.S. relations. So like people going back and forth, like who had firsthand accounts with Fidel Castro when they drove a bus into the Peruvian embassy. I want to read this. It's really good. I highly recommend it. And her own story, like talking about how for her birthday, it's the only, it's the one time of year her family could buy a cake and they spent money on it or like how they were waiting for the lotto to leave or her parents didn't fall in line with the Castro regime, but she had to go work on a farm for a month because she was a school kid. And Cuba, um, actually, they just took this out, I think, in the early 2000s, but School children had to go work on fields for a month and not eat very great food because they had to contribute. My brother has stories of that when he was uh, growing up in Cuba. And it was like summer camp and then made them go pick fruits. True story. That's how they fed the island. Yeah. I recommend to watch on Netflix. You guys haven't seen it already. It's called The Cuba Libre Story. And it's basically, I think, about 10 episodes. And it really breaks down of history of Cuba from the very beginning when it was still democracy, when it was a little corrupt. And you see the rise of Fidel and kind of like just all this history of Cuba and why it explains where they are now. And I, I think it, it provides great perspective. I would just love to hear about your personal anecdotes and stories that have been passed down from your abuelita, from your tíos, um, because neither of you grew up on the island, correct? So you guys? I was actually born on the island, but I came when I was two. And one of the biggest part of the identities of being a Cuban-American is kind of like your immigration story and your family story of getting here. And I remember talking to my dad about it, and he ended up diving into Guantanamo Bay and then being rescued by the Coast Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard at the bay, and then he um, seeked asylum in that fashion. But uh, the way that he ended up in that situation was because he was about to get arrested because he had, the day before, he had stood up to a local leader in the community who was part of the government and confronted him about, you know, why he didn't have enough food for his for his kid, my brother. And that was, you know, that was just a little small anecdote. And this was in the early 90s. But it just goes to show you, you know, what your family went through and what people on the island still go through of wanting to reach that uh, freedom. And a lot of my uncles, my dad's brothers, were actually imprisoned by the government for defying the government um, for, you know, probably doing some, some stuff that wasn't allowed. And they were, they were in prison for several years. Um, and currently now on the island, you just hear a lot of a scarcity, you know, just basic needs like toothpaste or soap is hard to come by. And even food, people have to stand in lines and hours for just a little bit of food. You know, even though food is already supposed to be rationed out, you're still having to stand in line for food. Basic necessities are bad. And just overall, you know, people people kind of just get comfortable with the status quo. Or I'm sorry, people, I don't think is that people are just comfortable to the status quo at the same time to stand up to a government that literally tortures or kills you for going against it is a big bet. And it's not 
someone it's not something everyone's gonna risk their life for you know because that's scary and it's you can't even deny that experience or begin to even think about how that experience shapes you like I always think about my parents living in a communist regime like that's an experience that no I will never able to get to experience and that many people in this world have never experienced and just imagine how that shaped their life their views on life and their experiences and when you take to when you take all that in it really paints a picture of the Cuban diaspora and what's going on the island now and and why you fled like why yeah. you literally had to Right. And why I'm here now and I'm so lucky that my parents made that move and were brave enough to start a life for me and my brother here and bring us that opportunity that we were never able going to get. Even during this time, my dad would reminisce like I I've been seeing my parents and to be like, you know, imagine if you were still in Cuba, like, you know, your life would be completely different. So, yeah, that is that is my personal anecdote. Yeah, you you make me you made me tear up a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> oh, because um, it's cool. Like I had trouble wrapping my mind around where my family's from and what that means. Because I grew up thinking every Hispanic was Cuban because I grew up in Miami, and that's obviously not the case. But um, my dad is actually the Cuban immigrant, and he's very quiet. I had my grandparents to always talk about Cuba, and my dad wouldn't mention it a lot. And seeing these protests and stuff, like his sister um, was actually born in Chicago because that's where my family immigrated from. And my my father's grand my father's parents, my grandparents, um, they were huge Batista fans. Like they, my grandfather had money, and he he was the previous president before Fidel Castro when the country was. Yeah, when the country was somewhat was still considered a democratic, but he would rig elections like Batista was the last one and people weren't happy with that regime either. But my family came from money, basically. Um, But when Fidel came along, like their lives drastically changed. And my father, I think, left when he was six or seven years old. And we were talking about the protests and I shared an article with in our family group chat and my aunt was like, oh, our family should be out there. Like our, speaking about our family in Cuba, they deserve freedom too. And my dad doesn't really speak on these matters, but he mentioned in the chat, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And he, my dad, I've never seen, my dad loves his sister. Like she does no wrong in his eyes. So to see him, who he doesn't text a lot, like shut her down, like even virtually, um, was kind of odd for me and in conversation he's like Gabby people used to die like protesting they would get just shot in the street they the still do you watch those videos and they're so violent but my dad was saying like you know like now the protests are bigger but he's like mm. someone would just be like hey cop I have no food and boom die mm. right in the middle of the street <sighs> that's intense it took me a while to realize that I'm a daughter of an exile and what that means and to me, that's powerful. That's what empowers me to do things all the time because my family didn't want to leave Cuba, but they felt like they had no choice because things were going so south. And to know that you didn't want to start over, but you did and made that my life that much better and you made these decisions not even knowing is crazy in perspective. And the fact that your dad was so young too to remember all of that, that just means that there was such a huge imprint that was left you know, like he was sort of scarred, I guess is the word that he just probably remembers so many things so vividly. And it's he 
all my life he says I need to go visit Cuba and he's never really been back so I think that speaks volumes like my my grandfather grandfather my mom's dad would say like I am I'm gonna visit Cuba when Castro's not there him his brother no one and you know my grandfather died he never got that opportunity and that's just mm-hmm. Again, another example of like people really have a lot of fun, patria y vida, that they have a lot of love for the island, but a lot of people feel like they can't go back or they honestly can't. Um, and also, I hear, I hear also that a lot of people just don't want to contribute to the tourism, you know, until things are better. Like they don't they don't want to be a part of that, you know, regenerating the economy. Also, you can't go empty handed. Like I grew up, you don't. I don't donate my things to Goodwill. It's oh, that doesn't fit you more. This doesn't fit you anymore. Eso pa Cuba. Yeah. Like or you have an old cell phone. Vamos mandarlo pa Cuba. Like yeah. Right. Right. I just I got a new computer and like the old one is that's gonna go to Cuba. <laughs> like that is the that is. There's no questions about it. I'm moving and I just gave my dad like a black bag of stuff. And he's like, oh, for Cuba, right? right. Like it's just automatic. Mm-hmm. But like, I guess that kind of brings us into our next point of like, where do we go from here? Like how long left do we send things to Cuba to make it better? Like when can things just happen for themselves? Um, and to be honest, I don't know. The, the U.S. technically can't intervene without it looking like warfare. I know the Biden administration agreed to like try to bring more internet. Um, there's been house bills brought up to free up money to bring relief in the way that can happen. Um, representative Stephanie Murphy like really pushed that through. She's a Florida representative, um, but for DC, obviously. And I at last check like, and this is a heads up: if you're protesting and you're out there, like remember that it's still important to call your congressman or congresswoman. Call your representatives, email them in because they have to save every voicemail, save every document and print every email. And we did a story and we found out like, yeah, they were getting a lot of calls and emails, but not as much as you would expect for the amount of protests that we've seen. So if you're yelling and screaming on the street, yes, you're creating attention, but to make change, you need to like go up the ladder or figure out a way to do it from where you're at. Um, And this is my call to action. Like until we bring more attention politically legislatively marco rubio i'm calling you out you're all about the cuban american diaspora but you have not brought up any new legislation whatsoever to help the cuban people governor DeSantis of florida you're sending lawmakers to the border or not lawmakers but law enforcement officers to the border but you're saying you stand behind the cuban american people but haven't brought up legislation either like that's a change that i think will bring us somewhere if the u.s has any say on it Right. And to your point, Gabby, I think a lot of Cuban Americans have been pressuring our local elected officials and have been even pressuring the White House. They've for the past two, three weeks, um, we've covered here caravans that have been leaving Miami to the D.C. area. There was just a protest this past weekend and one before that one as well. And people are there, you know, making their voices heard and they want the government to have some kind of intervention. Um, and I think that's it's a difficult I think it's a difficult situation, obviously, I think. Biden has a lot. He could really fudge the situation up. He could have like a bad crisis on his hands with Cuban American voters. But I think he could make a positive impact that would possibly turn Florida blue for the next election. That's just a food for thought. 
um, in the way that he handles this. I don't know, you know, uh, as Gabby mentioned, he was trying to get more internet access on the island. He's going to continue the block on foreign remittances to the island. But there really isn't anything really concrete. Maybe should we be looking at an international approach where maybe NATO or the UN kind of, not NATO, I'm sorry, maybe the UN takes in an approach. Um, I really don't see the US militarily getting, militarily invading the island um, unless another country kind of supports the Cuban government, kind of like a proxy war with Russia or China. But I I highly doubt that would happen. Um, but if it does, I think we would intervene in that in that area. But as of now, I think the U.S. or or the Biden administration is trying to find non-military ways to continue these efforts on the island and make sure that Cuban Americans are noticing that effort put forward, so they're not lost in the election. Just a food for thought because Florida politics is dicey, very interesting, and it's definitely an issue to explore again closer to the elections. I wonder how viable it would be for, you know, its own people, you know, the Cubans to overthrow the government. Like that would be, I guess, their dream to just have a new government start over, maybe no more socialism, maybe give democracy a try. Um, but who knows? I don't know what that would take if there would be like a coup d'etat sort, sort of thing. I think that's the hope is that mm. if the people start overthrowing like people on the island, then I think that may prompt the U.S. to support because they would have like a, like the book I was just saying, like the U.S. also strategically worked with exiles to bring people over to have these talks with Fidel Castro. Like there are p powerful exiles in the community. I don't know if that standard is the same way or if relations or politics on the islands the same way because it's no longer Raul or Fidel but I do think that if the people themselves were to host more of an uprising that they would find different support because to be honest like looking just doing some research Cuba's kind of out there no one's really backing them Russia nor China major powers aren't there but it's a militarized government the way cuba keeps people in line is using its military as their everyday police officers like tanks and everything so it's a big ask but that would be the ideal scenario so i guess my final question is what do you both want people to take from this the takeaway that i want people to have from this episode is that the cuban people have been oppressed for a very, very long time. And any of those people who resist the regime will be punished. And it is very difficult for these people to live a happy life without freedom. And I think awareness is very important. Just even being aware that this is a thing and that this is happening is a lot and it speaks volume. And I think wherever you're at, at whatever table or setting you're in, and you can provide information on the current state of Cuba and how its people have survived this long and those stories that me and Gabby shared and what it means for our entire community. I want people to take away what Patria y Vida means. I, it's funny because I got my tattoo before all this happens. If you don't know, I have a wrist tattoo that says Libertad, which is liberty in Spanish. And I know everyone confuses freedom and liberty, but freedom is like free will. I can get up, I can stand, I can go do this, I can go do that. So people in Cuba can still, they have the freedom to walk around, 
But liberty is living without oppression. And that's what they're crying out for. So Patria y Vida, and this is historical context and going back to how reggaeton really makes everything happen. Um, it's from a song, a Cuban liberation song m made and written and sung by Cuban exiles. A new reggaeton song that if you haven't heard it, Gente de Zona, they're, I love the artists because they're Cuban exiles who don't forget where they come from. Um, and that all stems from kind of turning the tables. Patria or Muerte, Homeland or Death, was the slogan for the Castro regime 62 years ago to overthrow the Batista government. And now people are reclaiming and saying Patria y Vida, country, homeland, patriotism, and life. And that's what they want. So as they want a life without oppression, with life of liberty, I want people to take away like that you have both freedom and liberty, and these people are fighting for both right now. So if Cuba ever comes up in conversation again, or if you notice it in the headlines, please take some of our words into context and talk about it with people. Keep the movement going because with awareness comes hopefully some sort of resolution. So don't be afraid to tell someone and say, Oye, let's learn a little bit more about what's going on in Cuba together because your knowledge can hopefully pave way for the liberty these people are seeking. Patria Vida. 